Hello and welcome to The Sidebar presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, December 8th, 2023. In this week's episode, the ongoing RICO trial of Young Thug as additional charges face the Grammy award-winning rapper and alleged kingpin of a criminal street gang. Plus, the obsessive ex-boyfriend convicted of murdering a prominent Hollywood sex therapist is sentenced to life without parole. But first, a double withdrawal by defense attorneys representing the eyedrop killer after a jailhouse letter claiming the lawyers conspired to forge evidence. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Michael Ayala, an attorney, anchor, reporter, and an Emmy Award-winning legal analyst you can catch daily on Court TV. Michael, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're, we were looking forward to this. I, I especially like having you on because I know that you, as part of your job, follow these cases uh, closely, m closer than most folks have the opportunity to because you're sitting there watching them during the day and hearing other people talk about them. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Uh, so let's jump right in. We're going first to Waukesha, Wisconsin, where the sentencing hearing for convicted murderer Jesse Kershevsky took a dramatic turn when both of the women's attorneys withdrew from the case amid a jailhouse letter. Kershevsky, dubbed the eyedrop killer, was convicted of murdering Lynn Hernan, a family friend, with a fatal dose of Visine and attempting to frame the death as a suicide. Following her conviction, prosecutors allege Kershevsky penned a 37-page letter to a friend <laughs> asking the woman to forge pieces of evidence which would validate the alibi. In the letter, Kershevsky allegedly asked her friend to make an audio recording posing as the victim, the, the, the elaborateness of this just boggles me, to apologize to Kershevsky for the suicide. If the forgery plot wasn't fantastical enough, the letter also goes on to allege that one of Kershevsky's attorneys had hatched the plan. This prompted motions to withdraw from both defense attorneys, which were later granted by Judge Jennifer Darrow. The loss of counsel will require a newly appointed attorney for Kershevsky further delaying sentencing. In the meantime, the investigation into the letter, which was delivered mysteriously with a stamp, but no postal markings, love that part, continues and Kershevsky will appear in court again on January 12th, 2024 for a status hearing. All right, Michael, a lot to <laughs> unpack here. I've never, I've never really up. heard any, no, you can't, I've never heard yeah. anything like this. Um, so, so jump right in. I mean, I guess my first question is, do you think this letter, my first suspicion began to be, is this letter just kind of an elaborate, way to throw chaos into this case or do you think that it was genuinely her attempt to create this false alibi you know it, it's hard to tell she adamantly denied in court that she wrote this letter she also made the case very eloquently i might add as she spoke to judge darrow that had she written it someone would have known any letter passed from prison out into the public or given to her attorneys is checked by prison guards. It goes through a number of different hands. There are cameras everywhere. So if she was writing some 37 page letter, uh, they would have known at some point. It was written, and here's the bizarre part. 
here's the bizarre part. It was written on the back of paper that had trial notes. So where did she get that? The notes from the trial written by the lawyers, which is what raised eyebrows for prosecutors yeah. that maybe the lawyers were involved. Of course, they adamantly deny that as well. So, but what I know of Jesse Krzyzewski from the testimony in the trial, this was a crafty young woman. This was someone who could figure out ways to take money from this woman and, and, and forge documents. She was definitely someone who was sort of living on that sort of fringe. Um, so this plot seems very much in line with what her personality seemed to be, creating this plot to try to get her out. Because the one thing that we know from the very beginning to now, she claims she did not murder this woman, that this woman committed suicide. Yeah. Yeah, you make a good point because I uh, the the same type of mind that would come up with the elaborate plan to kill someone by using eye drops, which I never even knew that was a way that somebody could die. Yes. That same type of diabolical planning is the same type of person I wouldn't be surprised to get involved in some sort of you know, letter plot, you know, to deceive. I but again, it all the part that is most confusing to me is what advantage is there to her really mm -hmm. to get her attorneys kicked off this late in the game? I mean, if this were happening mid-trial, that would be one thing, but she's she's done for. They're just waiting for sentencing. Yeah. Here's, here's what I think that was about. So again, I, I'm going to assume that she wrote this letter. I'm not sure okay. where else it could have come from. Now, let's, let's step back for a minute and, and understand how this letter got into the hands of prosecutors. There was a woman, a friend of hers, who had been coming to the trial was at the trial three or four different times. Um, this is someone who uh, had was still connecting with her, talking with her. This is according to uh, our reporter on the scene who, who covered the case. This was someone who had conversations with her. You could see them in court. They were definitely friends. Apparently, she was the one who got the letter and took it to the police saying she wasn't comfortable with what she was being asked to do. So this person's out there, right, at the end of the day. I think if this letter was written by Jesse Kraszewski, the line about the lawyers was really about convincing a friend of hers to do this. I think it gave it credibility on some level. That's the way I read it. I read the actual 37 pages, um, and it seemed like a way for Jesse to convince this person, hey, I know this is a little bit on the edges, um, but this was hatched by my attorneys, so it's okay. You can do it. Yeah. That was the sense that I got. So I don't think she was trying to get rid of her attorneys, although I will say this um, from the attitude yesterday, um, the attorneys are certainly done with her. Um, she mentioned in open court that they have not had much communications since this whole thing came out. And I also noticed during the trial, Joshua, that there wasn't much of a relationship. Oftentimes you'll see lawyers leaning over, talking to their client. Wasn't a lot of that in this case. At the end, when the verdict came down and she was crying pretty much uncontrollably, it was there was one, nothing more than just a little pat on the back. Usually your attorneys will come over, they'll console you, they'll, you know, talk to you a little bit, and whisper in your ear, tell you, hey, we'll continue to fight. It. There was none of that. So I don't think there was much of a relationship to begin with. But I don't think this was a plan on her part to get rid of them at this point. Yeah. See, this is why I love having you on the show, because you've got all these these insights <laughs> from having watched it and you actually read the letter. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I I the, the more you were talking, the more I think I'm convinced as to to your position on this. It does sound like that would have to me. And this is all pure speculation, too. But to me, 
for the lawyers to withdraw and everything that you've just explained too, mm-hmm. this might just be the tip of the iceberg of what she was trying to get her lawyers to do, right? If she's willing to to try to employ someone else for this elaborate audio, I mean, she, what she was trying to do is fake an audio recording that would provide an alibi for this suicide. I mean, it's just several steps of crazy when you put it all together. <laughs> you can imagine this isn't the first time she's come up with one of these harebrained brain schemes and yeah. probably was pressuring her attorneys all through that trial to do a, pull a bunch of ridiculous stuff and maybe they just saw this as their final opportunity to say, We're, we wipe our hands of all of this. Because again, you're at the end here. All you got to do is show up for sentencing. But maybe they were just like, you know what? This is our ticket. Let's get out of this whole thing. I think it was more serious than that, Joshua. Here's what happened. Um, her attorney, uh, both of her attorneys, um, were informed by prosecutors that this letter existed and that this letter suggested that they were the ones that not only hatched the plan, but delivered the letter. Um, now, you know, our ethical obligations as attorneys are, you know, we do what's in the best interest of our clients, but there's that's within reason. There's a reasonableness standard. Yeah. Right. And I know accepting letters from uh, a client, I would not accept a closed letter that they asked me to pass along. I need to know what's in that letter because I yeah. cannot um, be a part of any kind of criminal activity. As a matter of fact, my obligation would be if I know that this letter is asking someone to do something criminal, that I would have to report that. Um, so I wouldn't do that, but that's what she suggested these attorneys did. So when they called them in to let them know, in the meeting, there was a detective, okay? Oh. And so what they found out was there was a criminal investigation going. As you know, Joshua, the first thing as an attorney is, I am not losing my law license over yeah. this. And I need to get out of this. And they said, if there's a criminal investigation, I could possibly end up as a witness. So now my interest and their and my client's interest are now juxtaposed. I can no longer represent this person. They both went to the ethics commission who informed them that they needed to withdraw from the case. And I think that was really the motivating factor for the judge. The judge seemed not necessarily inclined to grant it because she felt that the motion they put before her wasn't in the proper form. There weren't any affidavits. There were a number of things missing from it. And she didn't seem like she was very happy about that. But when they said, look, we're doing this because the ethics commission told us this is what we need to do. And we're afraid we're gonna be witnesses. And there's a criminal investigation. She really had no choice. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if you're sitting there, this isn't a casual conversation, but there's actually a detective there. You're right. Not only is your law license perhaps but perhaps your own liberty on freedom, the line. Your own freedom. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. You're 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 yeah, saying. I need an attorney no, now. Now I no moss. <laughs> I'm done. Get me out. Get me off of this train. Yeah. Okay, makes a lot of sense. We will continue to follow this. Uh, you know, until it gets to sentencing, because it just seems like it continues to have uh, life breathed into it with all these crazy t- twists and turns. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's turn to um, Los Angeles, California, where here days ago, sentencing was handed down for an obsessive ex convicted of a Hollywood sex therapist's murder. Gareth Pursehouse was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in a Los Angeles courtroom for the death of Amy Harwick, a renowned counselor and one-time fiance of Price's Right host, Drew Carey. Pursehouse had dated Harwick for a brief period of time before they broke up nearly a decade before her murder. Prosecutors claimed that Pursehouse couldn't move on and that his obsession turned fatal after a chance encounter between Harwick a short time before the murder. Harwick, who died on Valentine's Day in 2020, was strangled in her bedroom before she was thrown from her third-story balcony. In his defense, attorneys argued Harwick's death was accidental, with the woman falling in an attempt to escape Pursehouse, who had merely broken into the woman's home to reconcile with her. Pursehouse, who will spend the rest of his life behind bars, was confronted by friends and family of his victim as emotional impact statements were delivered before sentencing. This case has always troubled me because of the, the time period between when their relationship ended and when he then decided to break into her home and confront her. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's a scary thought, and we it really brings a lot of... Um, uh, seriousness to the stalking charges that we hear about because many times the police feel like their hands are tied because well they haven't really broken the law they're just sitting in a car on a public road outside of your your work for eight hours a day we can't really do anything about it and you realize how these things can really turn dangerous and even deadly but my question here uh, for you first is about this idea that he was sentenced to life without parole or, or LWAP yeah. and that's because of um, what's called a special circumstance allegation of lying in wait. Could you explain for listeners kind of how that works and why that turned this murder into something even beyond that? Yeah, you know, first and foremost, it's just an incredibly tragic case, right? I yeah. mean, because not only was, you know, the descend in death, but he haunted this woman for the eight years after their relationship ended. He just could not get over this woman. All there was plenty of testimony about all the different ways that this guy was always on her mind. She would move into a new place, Joshua, and and she would set up um, security systems or make sure there were security systems because she knew this guy was out there. And, and it's just a horrible way to live. So let's think about that first and foremost. Yeah. And to your point about this lying in wait situation, yes, there's the crime itself. But what we do know and what came out during testimony was um, that he broke into her home. He sat in her home for four hours. He had a syringe filled with a lethal dose of nicotine. Now, although the, the lying in wait aspect of this case is when sitting in someone's home waiting for them for four hours enhances the penalties available to the court because it just adds an element to the crime that is particularly heinous. Um, when you think about that fact, the idea that someone sat in wait for someone, the planning that it took to do this. He planned this thing. He got the nicotine. He got the syringes. Um, he planned this out. He doctored the cameras. He waited for four hours. All those things add to the seriousness and heinousness of the crime, which makes it more serious in the eyes in terms of, uh, for the court, in terms of sentencing. So that's kind of how that works. Um, he argued against, you know, I, I think what was going on in this case, and again, this is another one we aired on, on Court TV, um, 
was the defense was really putting on a defense that was aimed at sentencing. Mm. Um, I don't think there was any way they were going to get out of these charges. They were just just too much evidence. But they were arguing that he really just wanted to talk. He went there to talk and, and, and things sort of escalated from there. And she sort of got afraid of him and was running from him and fell accidentally. Um, the nicotine that he had in the syringe was there because he intended to kill himself. And I thought all these things really made didn't make very much sense, except if you looked at it that they were hoping for some slight mitigation in sentencing. Well, obviously it didn't. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it's understandable. So why we would attach extra penalties or punishments to crimes that include these special circumstances, because. You know, so much of the criminal law, especially when it comes to murder, has to do with the mindset of the person committing the act. So like you just pointed out, this is a first degree premeditated murder with the planning, the 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 getting the syringe, the going to her home. All of that shows this wasn't a spur of the moment thing. But then the law in California at least says that even beyond that, certain things like lying in wait or multiple murders or murders committed during the, the commission of certain felonies, you know, a rape or a home uh, residential burglary, by the way, that all of these can enhance something beyond that so that we say, and in fact, what it does is it makes it death penalty eligible. So right. California, we'll talk about that in a, in a moment, is yes. not in, employing the death penalty right now, but it makes the case death penalty eligible or as a special circumstance case, if they're not going to pursue death, the the default in sentencing is life without parole. So that's kind of all he was looking at. One more interesting wrinkle about this case, again, dealing with the, the picadillos of California criminal law, but they recently repealed essentially uh, the entire felony murder rule in mm -hmm. California. That's right. And so this case traditionally would have been proven by hey even if you don't believe he came there to murder her if you believe he came there to commit a residential burglary yes. and in the course of that burglary he killed her that's first degree murder now they're not playing with that safety net so you're right the the defense here was attacking the 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 idea of both the sentencing and why he came there because if they could have and they obviously didn't but convicted uh, convinced a jury that he did not actually come there to commit a crime but just to speak with her there's an a a very narrow but a a pathway where they could have argued that hey he shouldn't even be convicted of first degree murder so i, I don't yeah. want to get too much into the weeds about all of that but it is sure. an interesting case study for all of that but my question is you you watch so many of these cases around the country so you have yeah. a pretty unique perspective in California, the death penalty, uh, the governor has essentially put it into a moratorium. So even in cases where it's eligible for the death penalty, it's still on the books, but no one's pursuing it. Do you think in a different jurisdiction, a jurisdiction where they do pursue the death penalty, Texas comes to mind, Florida comes to mind, do you think this is a case where they would have pursued the death penalty given what you explained about the history between the two of them, yes. the lying and wait, all of that? Yeah, no question about it. This case was yeah. in Florida or Texas. Um, this absolutely would have, would have been a death penalty case, again, because of all the, the points you mentioned and I mentioned earlier, um, the idea of the preparation of it. And and the history, I think, would have played a big role uh, in that decision. The idea that this guy, when they were together, there were allegations of domestic violence. Shortly after, 
there were allegations of domestic violence. There were allegations long after the relationship was over of stalking. Um, all of these things would have put, been put into a pot by prosecutors. And I have no doubt that in states like Florida and Texas, they would have asked for the death penalty in this case uh, based on all the evidence that this jury saw. It really, the more you think about it, it is it is a tragedy in so many ways, but it also seems like a failure of the system. Like here is a person mm. who, what more could she have done to protect herself? I mean, she got restraining orders. She had gone to the police. She she security and everything else. And and in spite of all of that, and in spite of the clear demonstrations of his danger toward her, this is something that just couldn't be prevented. And I, I'm not even saying that we can figure that out and that there is right. an answer to it as we sit here. But it's just it adds to the tragedy of the whole thing. Yeah, there's no question about it. And we've talked about this in so many cases, because as you mentioned, many, many of the cases that we have here begin um, is when you have these sort of partner violence with domestic violence. Yeah. Um, and there's no question that the correlation between domestic violence. Um, I know there's laws uh, being passed and, and being introduced throughout the country trying to keep to people who, who have been convicted of domestic violence from getting guns. For instance, because again, mm -hmm. the correlation between domestic violence and then gun deaths of those partners are just so high. The connection is there, but there are also, you know, the rights uh, on the other side. The person who's been accused of these. How how do we restrict them and their movement, their life based on these allegations? You know, we've come a long way. I can remember my early early days, um, both practicing law as well as uh, as a reporter. There was a very different approach uh, to domestic violence. Um, I can, in the evolution of that time, there's domestic violence officers now in just about every police station in the country. So if something like this happens, there's usually a female who can talk to a female who may be involved in a situation like that. And let's not forget, men can also be victims of domestic violence. There are people there that they can talk to. They approach these cases very differently. They immediately look to separate people. Um, they take these allegations so much more seriously now and still and still, we can't stop this type of violence. So again, we're not going to find the answers right now, but we have to continue to look at these cases, look at the trends, try to find a way to stem the violence. Incredibly well said. Well put, sir. Well, it, it, it's 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 sad, um, you know, be, beyond ways that I can explain, but I'm I'm hoping that some degree of comfort was brought to the victim's family and the fact that this this man will never see the light of day again that the greatest penalty at least that can be enforced in california right now has been so yeah in the meantime one last thing before we yes get please this please no um he put on no defense um basically um everything that i talked about came out through cross-examination and an argument um his demeanor throughout the trial was bizarre uh, I don't know if he was on some sort of medication, but I mean, he was as stone faced as one could be. There was zero emotion on his face throughout. Um, I don't even know how to or where to sort of place what I was watching, it, it, or, you know, how to categorize um, this man. Um, but I agree with you and I, hopefully the family gets some sort of solace in the fact that again, he will not be in contact with the outside world uh, ever yeah yeah obviously a very sick individual Disturbed. and i don't no use point. that word to excuse his behavior at all but i it's just a way to describe someone who is just this obsessed over someone yeah um 
to 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 take their life in this tragic way of over i don't know un, unrequited love it's it's really really yeah. sad Finally, we turn to Atlanta, Georgia, where additional charges face young thug in the sprawling Rico case, which is well underway after allegations that the rapper's YSL label collective violated Georgia's racketeering laws. Thug, born Jeffrey Williams, was indicted on six counts of the nearly 60 charges leveled against him and 28 of his alleged co-conspirators, all members of YSL. When Williams' home was searched after his arrest in May of 2022, investigators allegedly found incriminating evidence that implicated him on additional charges of participating in a criminal street gang, as well as gun and drug charges. Prosecutors alleged that Williams was the kingpin of a street gang known as Young Slime Life, which has affiliations with the Bloods in Atlanta. Controversially, a judge has allowed the rapper's lyrics to be used as evidence, which allegedly demonstrates that Williams used his platform to promote the gang's activity. Thus far, prosecutors have presented testimony from law enforcement officials who have demonstrated the inner workings of criminal street gangs. The trial is still ongoing and expected to last, get this, several months. We will continue to bring you developments as they occur. Um, Michael, how... Just give us your rough thoughts on this. How do you feel the prosecution's case is going so far? Well, it started out a little rough um, from the very beginning. They had some issues with their opening statements, a presentation that wasn't provided over to the defense, got the uh, judge very upset. Um, so it wasn't a good start. But since then, they've sort of hit their stride. Um, the person they have prosecuting this case um, is someone with a lot of experience with this type of trial. And, you know, it, these RICO trials, they're long drawn out trials. It takes a long time to sort of make the connections that need to be made. You have to lay it goes in layers. Yeah. You have to lay out the crimes and you have to. And that's an extended process. It's just like a mini trial um, for this particular crime. Then you have to connect the crime to the gang. Then you have to connect the gang to the individuals and ultimately to Young Thug being sort of head of this whole thing. So it's, it's going along in very sort of slow fashion. Um, you can see that this is going to take some time. So I think I think they're going along fine. Um, folks online are concerned that, oh, when are they going to make the connections to, you know, him? Well, I don't see any connections. Well, you know, that's going to come a little later. And there was a motion made by the defense saying they wanted a an instruction to the jury that they have to make these connections. And the judge was like, no, that doesn't come <laughs> to the end of the trial. Um, and it's going to take time. So we'll see that happen. Um, and we're going to talk about the ways that they plan to do that. But yeah, I think it's going along fine right now. The evidence is coming in. Um, it's good evidence. It's clear evidence. And it's been presented in a very uh, cohesive way. Yeah. Yeah. I, these these RICO trials, federal trials in particular, usually are of a much grander scope than state trials. Um, so the, the fact that they're just, you know, involving so many different defendants and like you said, so many different acts of conspiracy that all have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt and connecting all of that you're right it just it's not a matter of them taking their time it's a matter of it just takes that much time exactly. to put it all together exactly. i guess one of my first questions would be you know the jurors that they have on this are all what's called time qualified so they've gone through and asked everyone hey this trial is going to last several months are you able to do this and that that's why jury selection took Part, partially why it took so long is just to find that many people who can say, 
yeah, it's not going to cripple me financially to sit here for six months and listen to this trial. But even so, do you think that that has a kind of effect on jurors where they might just get tired of hearing this slow iceberg move along? Uh, and if so, who does that help or benefit or or hurt? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I always felt like when you have these long cases, you get a specific type of juror. Oftentimes, you're not getting the younger juror. You're not getting the professional juror, obviously. You're getting folks who have a little bit more time on their hands, tend to skewer older, yeah. um, tend to be more mature, um, you'll find as well. And so I think what you'll find is that often they're able to sort of focus in on the trial. And now you have a responsibility as an attorney to make sure that they remain focused in, in the way you prepare your case, um, the types of evidence you bring in. So for instance, I know at some point we're gonna hear, or at least allegedly on the witness list, uh, some famous personalities are gonna be called by the state. So as you begin to get a feel, and a lot of this is feel, Joshua, as you know, as you get a feel that the jury might be sort of getting tired of this sort of, you know, rote evidence that we're providing a video of a, of a, of a drug bust, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we'll bring in Little Wayne and uh, get them perked <laughs> up again. You know, so you got to continue to kind of keep them involved. It's part of your job as a trial attorney as well. Um, but it's definitely a concern. You got to be connected with them. You got to keep, you know, you got to have some sort of sense of what's going on with them and how they're receiving the information, whether they are getting bored, because that's certainly, it's, a, it's human nature. They will at some point get bored with it and you got to keep them uh, understanding why this is important, why they need to stay tuned in. Yeah. How do you think this trial is being viewed by the wider hip hop community? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, years ago, um, the idea of using rap lyrics, and I, and I know this from, from having prosecuted gang crimes here in Los Angeles, um, that was a tool that was sometimes used. And then people kind of backed off from it because there were these First Amendment concerns. And then the idea that, um, you know, you're, you're maybe just kind of uh, stereotyping or character assassination with someone if they happen to be involved in this particular genre of of music and but the the prosecution here says no we're going into this because we feel it it works in understanding this gang and how they were operating is is language used and then that language used in their rap lyrics um but i got to imagine the rest of the hip-hop communities looking at that going wait a second they're doing what now <laughs> yeah what do you think yeah i mean when we talk about the hip-hop community yes they they feel rap is under attack right that at the yeah. end of the day they feel like they have a first amendment right um if we talk about the way i see it um and, and i'm a hip-hop fan to a degree i'm certainly not a, a gangster rap fan per right. se um but anyone who knows anything about hip-hop knows and you've been prosecuting these cases as you said for years this has been going on a long time. People in the community know that people rap about crimes that they commit, and they're very specific about who they've targeted, what they've done, and they're actually rapping so that the other person knows that they're doing that. And everyone in the community knows. This has been going on a long time. I cannot condone that. I believe in the First Amendment. I believe that rap should be free to do what it needs to do because we also have to look at it from the other side that you know, this, they're using a lot of social media in this case as well. They're using rap. I mean, these are fantasy worlds, Joshua, right? We create fantasy online. We create a personality or a life that we want other people to think exists that doesn't really exist. 
So right. there's an argument to be made that, you know, when he's rapping about these crimes, he may know about them. He had been told about them because he does have a connection. He grew up in an area where this gang has sort of become sort of the fear, the dominant gang. And it helps his credibility. It helps his street cred. It helps sales records. You need to make that connection. And I think as far as this jury is concerned, I think they're going to have to make sure that they make a connection that can really stand up because it could backfire. I've said this in a, on my show a couple of times that if you are going to bring these lyrics in, boy, you better, the judge is requiring them to, for it to be relevant and for there to be a foundation and to make the connection. They better be able to do those things. Or I think if they don't, once they take that route, if they don't, this jury will penalize them. They will say, yeah. you are going to take this man's music, his living, and say that this is how he's sort of um, committing these crimes and he's rapping about these crimes and this is how you're going to try to send him away for life on this weakness. Mm -mm. We're not going to let you get away with that. So they better be tight. Now we know, what are they going to do? We're going to hear from people that they've made deals with who are going to come in and say that this rap verse that you just heard is absolutely meant to send a message, meant to continue our plan, which is fear, dominance, and control of the community. And I know this for a fact because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So... There's a lot yeah. of steps there, right? Yeah. And I think I this agree. jury is going to be watching this very closely because I think once you take that step, again, you better back it up. Yeah, I agree with you that they better be careful and not overplay it because if they do, they're going to completely lose credibility, not only with that yes. argument, but that could bleed over into their other arguments. Yeah. I think As you were talking, falls. I think it falls at that point, honestly. I yeah. think it's that serious. No. Yeah, I, I agree with you. As you were talking, I, I think you're you're absolutely right too. They have to be careful because th these are performance artists, and part of performing is taking on a persona sometimes absolutely. and employing these tropes. And you see it not just in limited to gangster rap, but in all genres of music. I mean, I, I imagine there are plenty of country western singers who've never rode a horse in their entire life, you know. But you can't use their lyrics to all of a sudden say that they know how to, you know lasso a, a cow just because they're they're singing about it and in and it's going to be as ridiculously sounding to the jurors if they're not able to kind of connect these dots one interesting thing though from from the other side of this is and i think important for listeners to understand is you're right you have a first amendment right to to say nearly anything and they have a first amendment right to to talk about all of this but that doesn't mean that it can't be used as evidence. So if they're talking about things and communicating, and I think that's where it could be most powerful for the prosecution, is not trying to say that the the crimes that they may be talking about in these rap licks are actually true, but it's the language that they're using, that they're dealing, they're using a language and, and speaking in terms that are part of that gang culture and part of, and sending a message to other people who might understand it. And if they're nuanced enough and clever enough, it could be powerful, but you're right. They, they better watch out because it could backfire. I think Joshua, I think they're actually saying that they're rapping about these crimes. They're not just saying they're sending messages. Yeah. As Fannie Willis said, and I agree with her, she said, you're not going to be able to rap about crimes that you've committed and get away with it in my in my state. Yeah. And and I agree with that. I, I, I've always disliked that part of hip hop. It doesn't need to be a part of hip hop. 
And if, again, if they can show that connection, because I think they're saying, this is what he's talking about. And the lyrics that I've seen talk about someone shooting someone else or someone confronting someone else and doing this and I stole this. Listen, if they have someone come in and say, yes, that's an exact crime I committed, he put that out there as a way of continuing our fear dominant to control of this sort of gangland sort of lifestyle. Um, I honestly, as much as I revere the First Amendment as, as a reporter um, and love music and, and think that, yes, I agree with you, they need to look at all forms of music, not just black music, although black music seems to be the one that, you know, seems to garner the most sort of attention as far as this goes. Um, I don't think you should be able to get away with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will see. This certainly is a presenting an interesting test case, and we'll see even when this is over, if it was successful, how might that change prosecutions around the country that deal with these types of gang crimes? So we I hope have, it changes the gangs, Josh. I yeah. hope they stop rapping about this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Let's be smart. You know, can I just say one last thing? Please, please. One of the crimes that they um, were, uh, that they had some evidence for, they picked up a guy um, who was a part of the gang who was selling drugs and the cops were able to get him because about an hour before, he had posted pictures of himself with guns and drugs. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on, guys. You know what I mean? It's like, that's a level of hubris that, you know, um, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. And they got to recognize no, I, that things have changed. I, 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 so I, I can't tell you how many um, gang prosecutions I've done where uh, they know that a certain type of weapon is involved and a quick cursory view of the that suspect's social media will show them holding that exact weapon. I mean, it just happens time and time again. Well, we will follow this case. We've got several months to do it, so we'll keep everybody updated. But in the meantime, Michael, uh, this was an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Um, you can go to my LinkedIn, Michael, uh, Michael Ayala at CoreTV.com as well. I got some stuff going on there. I've been uh, CoreTV.com as well. I uh, Twice, three times a week, uh, I talk about various topics, including uh, the Young Thug trial. So you can find me there as well. So, um, yeah, check us out on CoreTV as well. I'm on every night from 5 to 7 p.m. Fantastic. I do tune in. I always enjoy hearing your thoughts. You. I'm your Thank host, you. Josh Ritter. That. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.